Serious TV Drama Podcast. I'm Scott, and joining me once again, the audibly pleasing to my visually aggravating, it's Brian. Hey, Brian. Hey, Scott. <laughs> I like that. I, I figured for once, let me try to pull off a short intro instead of one of the weirder ones. And the minute I heard the phrase visually aggravating, like, oh, there it is. I, I can I can work with that. I think I think you and I both have faces made for radio. <laughs> yeah, I'm, for me, the more the old timey ones, like we'll, like we'll, like we've been seeing in that that one of the shows that we'll be talking about later tonight, because we are once again back for our HBO double feature, which is Succession and Perry Mason. As I've said before, and I guess I will continue to say for the next couple weeks, if you don't watch both, check that segment breakdown to know when to stop and when to go. Sounds like I'm talking about a traffic light. And if I'm talking about a traffic light, then the light says go time. Because, man, I'm thinking the two of us have got to have a little bit to say about that little show called Succession this week. <laughs> you know, um, I was reflecting as I watched the show. I think you and I had a discussion about how long was this going to go on. <laughs> um, you know, that 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 Logan had hung around probably far longer than anyone had anticipated. But boy, did they pull the rug out from under our feet in this episode and quietly, um, unceremoniously, we get a phone call and boom, they kind of do to the viewers what they did to the characters Oh uh, yeah, in a really interesting way. Absolutely. And, and that's absolutely the way I read it as well. Um, it's interesting just because I think because it obviously the title of this episode is Connor's Wedding. And you know what? We should have known better because all the hot and fancy HBO series over the years, they always have these episodes that are supposedly going to revolve around a wedding, you know, but they're always like a really big deal. And the big deal has very little to do with the actual nuptials. And we all know which shows I'm talking about. And if you don't, well, I can't really help you. Now, yeah, let's get into it as you just did, because while we will make our way through the entire episode, there's no way we can talk about it without addressing the big elephant corpse in the room and just how surprised and shocked that we were. Now, I, I think we, we're probably in sync and thinking it's not the actual death of Logan Roy that's that shocking as much as when it happened. It's the third episode of the season. It's not the right. finale. It's not the penultimate episode. There's seven more to go. And now the patriarch of the family, the guy, the dude, the person who much of the drama and plotting and character impact to all others revolved around, is dead. It's an, uh, what I love about it. It's an enormously gutsy, well, and, and for this show, it's a, it's a ballsy decision. That's the way they would really phrase it, you know. Very few times have we watched a series over the past, say, 20-odd years where an event occurs that makes you go, well, this changes everything. Especially when you get this far into a series during its fourth and final season. Now, obviously, if we wanted to take that much time on this podcast, we could compile or come up with a list of shows that have done things where we're going, okay, this, this, everything just changed in a huge direction because of that. Whether it be some of the genre shows that we've loved over the years, or just straight up dramas where something happened, like, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Um, I know the most obvious one that some people will go to will be something like the penultimate episode of the first season of Game of Thrones, you know. But my rebuke to that, though it was major, um, 
that's a book adaptation, so every reader of the novel already knew that was going to happen, and that was in the first of what was an eight, turned out to be an eight-season series. And the thing, I, and we were chatting about this before we started recording, any of the series that kind of deal in death on a nearly episodic basis, I don't think they get to rank the surprise shock value of something like this as a show like Succession. So I'm going to shrug at shows like Game of Thrones or The Sopranos or even, you know, one of our favorite, easily all-time favorites, The Wire. Because when you get death, whether it's expected or shocking, it, that's the currency of those series. It's not for this show. Although the creators would say, hey, we told you from the start, the show is called, titled Succession. It's about who's who's going to take over this position once the father is gone. And the entire first season was playing with the idea of his possible death because of his health issues. They just they just stretched it out until the third episode of the of the final season. Yeah, but it, but the way they played with it, they've stretched it out so long that it seemed sudden. It's almost like. It's almost like that that now that it's stretched on that long when they made this bold move it was shocking just because of the knowledge this being the final season in our heads I think we all plotted it as maybe somewhere between the 7th and the 10th episode. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I honestly thought if they were going to well, you know, kill him off as they say, and I was fairly certain they would. I I I probably would have went with um is, is it a ten episode season this this final season or is it a nine I forget uh it's a ten I think it's a ten episode season if I'm not mistaken yeah I'm pretty sure it's a ten yeah I was thinking I was actually even though I mentioned before about final episode or penultimate I actually probably would have thought episode eight I thought yeah. they would I thought there would have been like two episodes to deal with that because if you're gonna kill him you're gonna have to have you're gonna have to have an episode that's gonna deal with the funeral stuff you can't just skip that that's gonna be a that's gonna take up a big chunk of an episode as well. And then let let then it's grand you know battle royale or whatever however they choose to play it. The weird thing with this episode and and what was shocking about it for me beyond it being the third episode, um, but for a good stretch of time when this starts to happen, I didn't think it was really happening. I kept thinking, okay, this is some sort of a morbid joke, a bizarre trick that's being played on the Roy Kinder here. Until we finally see something where we realize, oh, this, this is not a joke. There really are chest compressions happening. This this is real. <laughs> this, is, this is really happening. Yeah, and I think the, the way this family operates, you're a suspect of everything. And the, right. the, they are and the viewer is. And... You don't even take it serious. And then when it becomes serious, um, you're sucked into the drama of it. And um, I, I mean, I still kept thinking like, you know, hey, when he comes off, when when Roman goes on the plane, is he going to be alive? <laughs> like, I mean, I held on till the end that thinking like maybe that maybe they even decided to twist and use it that they brought him back. And right. Right. Uh, because it was so shocking. Now, I mean, in my head, I really you know, knew he was, he was gone. But I think, you know, I think the viewer in many ways, you were one of the three kids. You were either Roman thinking, no, there's no way he's dead. Um, or you were Kendall that were like, well, you know, I, I hate that you're gone, but I can't forgive you. Um, or you're, you know, Shiv, who's just, you know, completely stunned by it and probably the rawest because she was 
still angry and never made peace with him in the, in that way. Right. Right. Uh, um, I want to address that, but I also want to go back to something you said just a moment ago. Uh, um, when you were talking about, um, God, you said so much to know. I've just lost my train of thought. Great. Good for a podcast. Um, da, 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 da. Oh, it, it's, oh, it's, 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 it's us as the audience finding out about it. And, oh, no, no, it wasn't that. I know. It was, uh, how to take it seriously or not. And when it's something, especially something that's so huge and tragic and serious and the initial reactions and, and the, you know, is this a joke, whatever. And it takes me to say like Roman initial and maybe even Shiv, more Roman's reaction to Kendall's news at the end of season three when he's talking about how he, at least at that point, what he's saying is like he, he killed a person. And, and, and even, and even the dark humor that Roman plays there, because that's how they deal with these kind of things. That's how they, they deal with the darkness and ga- they, they, they revel in gallows humor. Um, the thing that you also said, I, I think you just said it a moment ago, or you said it before the podcast, or maybe you said it both times. Don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a little out of it right now. Um, the, the, the fact that in a way, um, the the Roy, the the Roy children finding out is kind of like the way we're finding out about it, um, and what I thought was really interesting about that, um, beyond what you just said, was, you know, it's a very original way of how they handled this because we ver- we see little to nothing of Logan during those those endless chest compressions. The fact that Logan never gets his own actual death scene. And instead, it's played out as a scene that can only be imagined by his children as they react in very different ways, as you just demonstrated. They're all equally different, and there's something moving about each one of them in its own way. They all have their, because they, they all have their, you know, private, tragic, horrific circumstances with their father that there's things that only they know about between the two of them, and there's things that, you know, the family knows. You know, um, and I find it fascinating for them to do that on a series like this, because this is a show that, you know, some might refer to the characters um, that people waste their energy calling these characters, you know, horrible and hateful and unlikable and other nonsense. And I push back on that by saying, well, yeah, I, I know why you'd say that. It makes sense. I view them as just being human you know you they they're human with heightened dialogue because they either playfully or hurtfully scratch and claw at each other but at the end of the day you know the honest interactions and reactions i mean if you take away what was written by really great writers it feels about as real as anything i've ever seen on a, on a television series so watching how they deal with this shocking for them death and and especially at this juncture of what's going on so it's like what you were saying. It there's matter for each of them. There's some form of a matter that's always going to be unresolved, un you know, or unfor or even unforgiven. Shiv's the most recent victim, so to speak, of the three. So she is the most raw of the three, as you said it. Which, um, but it's just interesting watching. They all have those moments, and and you start really wondering, you know, how much of that was just. You know, it, what, was there any level of improv there? Was everything on the written page? When you've got someone like um, the actor who plays Kendall, uh, Jeremy Strong, who's no, you know, who's, who's you know, 
you know, the poster boy for method acting. And you wonder if this was just, you know, just do your thing, man. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. It, and, and, and actually, and, and then it's a credit to, and, and I'll say it's, it's most likely 99% the writers, maybe even more than that. Cause the, it's such an exceptionally well-written show. Um, it's a credit to the writers and thus it's a credit to the actors as well, because we're not going to see many extended sequences on any series play out that well. And we're watching and it's weird because we're on the edge of our seat, but it's like there's tension and emotion going on. And we, and I think there's that part of us that can think, wait, they're not, this isn't really happening, right? This, and then there's that point where like, Oh no, It's happening. Oh the the genius, the genius of keeping us in the dark as we experience it with the kids, and and you, you nailed that. And and to give the writers props, um, you know, I, I went back and noted Logan Roy's final words, and his final words. And you, as a writer, I think you'll love this because you talk about meta. His final words were, clean out the stalls, strategic refocus, a bit more fucking aggressive. <laughs> Those were his last words. And it's like, it's like clean house, you know, we're going hard and that's what it's going to, that's what the show's going to be. I, I yep. mean, it was a meta take on where the show was headed um, and he didn't get a, a swan song. He didn't get a, a final moment he was just a body on the floor i mean basically he was a body on the floor the rest of the episode and and i found that remarkable and and we're not a podcast who goes and reads stuff and regurgitates it to you i think scott and i both hate that like we want to have our own original thoughts um but if we do say something we like to attribute it and i don't know where i got this from but i did read see or hear somewhere the one thing that was definitely improv was where the kids hugged at the airport. Oh, I don't really? know if that was on after the episode or I read it somewhere, but where they all did the hug, the mm-hmm. group hug, that was an improv that the oh, actors okay. did. So, wow. I did not know that. Cause I, I have genuinely not read a thing about the episode. So, because I want, I, I want to be as fresh and raw for our podcast as especially since we have to wait a few days before we can do it, but I still want it to be as fresh as possible for, for you, the listener. So, cause you've probably already listened to like 18 other podcasts at this point anyway. So, with all that said, let's actually run, start to run through the episode now. And we can, you know, we've met, you've mentioned a few things already. We can talk about, you know, any things that we see that were, oh, that was a bit for, bit of foreshadowing there, or maybe that has a bit deeper, more intriguing meaning there as far as either what happens later in the episode or in the weeks to come. By the way, uh, before, <laughs> I'm going to do the weirdest jump ahead of all time. It was interesting that after Episode three, because of what happened and the magnitude of what happened, we get a promo for the weeks to come on succession, not the next episode. Now, when shows do the, you know, this season on, it's usually after the first episode. But after this is like, okay, we're restarting everything, obviously. This is, this is monumental. But I also thought it was, you know why? Even though it was very clear, like, no, no, this really did happen. By showing us all these scenes for the next, for weeks, not just the next episode, they just want to make it clear. Okay, in case any of you just for some reason thought maybe we were, we're, we're fucking around here. No, no, no. We did it. He did. 
Yeah. I mean, they're, they're basically saying like, hey, like we're, this is going to be two seasons of a show and you just watch like the three episode first part of the season. And now like now that there's going to be this seven part, you know, season uh, uh, and really, I, it, I think it's to both tell people he's dead and to give people a context to think of how they're going to reset the show. Right. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and I will say, you know, social media, if you go by social media reaction, um, we're also sort of dulled, but by it all, mm-hmm. but every now and then a show breaks through or a moment happens, or, I mean, this was a Will Smith slap at the Oscars moment on social media. Like, right. Right. like, you know, uh, it was like a succession. Oh my God, I can't believe it. Like, it, it just went went hog wild, and uh, it it was a, it was a cultural moment when this happened. Excellent, yeah. I, I had to realize something was up because I noticed that, um, uh, and I want I've already watched it that uh, Brian Cox was on Colbert, I think, the very next night. <laughs> And I know that Stephen Colbert is like a massive Succession fan. He's had the entire, he's had the entire cast on. Um, I think there was like one person missing. And I, if it was one person, it was probably Jeremy Strong, <laughs> if, I, if I'm recalling correctly. Uh, although he's been on the show, but he's like, oh, he's uh, he's he's the opposite of fun. Anyway, so let's get to fun. Let's get to the episode. So we open the episode. Um, speaking of Logan, we open with Logan and Roman um, having a phone conversation back and forth. And, and 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 especially now when we're looking back, because these are going to be like this will essentially be the last real interaction between these two. And I don't know if we would count the Roman speaking to the ear of a likely dead father later on in the episode. Um, so, and so, in that in its own way, it makes this conversation, in retrospect, feel that much more. Well, I, I'm probably going to hit this word a bunch of times, so I'll just, we'll st- you know, start taking doing your shots now whenever I say the word tragic. Um, there's a very tragic nature of this when we look back on it, because Roman in this conversation is already questioning his decision to kind of go along with his dad. And whether he believes him or not, or is he actually, you know, kind of using him and screwing him over at the same time? And, and also... It also it's a reminder that as as nasty a piece of work as Roman can be at times, um, he's still there. There's there's still a soul there. He still cares about people there, and the the fact that he I mean he's the one who's pointing out you know this is what you're asking me to do and all, this is at the same time as Connor's wedding. You kind of have to you got to do that. And Logan's the one who just shrugs it off, you know. You know, apparently he and Carrie got got them some you know, letters between the, from Napoleon to Josephine and vice versa. Oh, oh boy! Yeah, but I, I imagine Connor likes that and ancient Roman coins. <laughs> well, I know. I, I've heard that Connor is looking for this gold coin that was lost back in 1933. <laughs> oh wait, wrong show. Sorry. See, see, segment breakdown has broken down. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, because Logan is pressing Roman on wanting him to go see Mets, and I mean, it's pretty clear he's using him because 
he saw the vibe the two of them had between each other because, well, they're, they're certainly closer in age and their perspective on life and technology in the future. So you bring that dude in, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're an 84 year old guy, <laughs> you know, which apparently is how old he is, which makes you start wondering, wait, how old is Roman supposed to be? Okay. I guess he had him late. All right. Um, actually, I guess he had him all late. Now that I think about it, you start doing the math. But it it, 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 I think Roman knows, and he's still gonna go along with it. But then I think it's in that car conversation just to make it all that much more worse for Roman. He tells him that he's gonna he he pretty much you know how we saw people passing the buck about who's gonna be the one to tell Carrie that uh, she ain't going to be a TV anchor for them. And that was obviously initiated by Logan, of course. Well, he's doing it again as far as getting rid of Jerry. And and to make Roman be the person to do it, it, it's reminiscent of when you need someone to prove themselves when they're going to you know join the mob or something. So here, kill your best friend or, or something like that. Because the person that Roman's been bizarrely closest to over the last few years, you know, dick pics or not, has been Jerry. So I think does does Roman have a line is it while well, is it is it to himself in the car or is it a little bit later on? It's like the worst day of his life, pretty much. Or something along those lines, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And uh it it's particularly cruel of Logan to do that, but you know, if if he really just was with Roman because he loved him, he wouldn't ask him to do this. Of and, course and, not. You know, so I mean, but it, it's echoes of what Connor said, you know, in the earlier episode that that all of them want his love so much that that they put themselves in these positions. And uh, Roman is the one that's in his, you know. Uh, sphere right now right so he's feeling his attention and liking it but still he knows something's not quite right and uh, it makes it really sad because when you see it through that lens it's it's not just sad it's kind of pathetic right yeah absolutely i mean like i think i said last week a lot of the roman stuff i think stems back to the fact that he's the one that we know was on at least one if not more occasions actually abused by by logan so there is always going to be that 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 abuse victim kind of um syndrome that he has with, with his father um which you know which in a weird way kind of almost not not rationalizes but explains the way he is about him um so let's shift from that because we'll plenty more to say about roman throughout throughout this episode he's he's fascinating so well they're all they all are but let, let, let's get to something a bit lighter for because it's not that much light but yet there is there's enough lightness in this episode but usually and most of it's at the beginning and and if we want to go lightness we we go to a scene with tom and greg um and we go to what he says where i when the line that i took for our for your introduction tonight where he where when Tom, when Tom is making it clear that no 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 Greg you're you're not coming on this trip you know you know he finds you visually aggravating right now by the way I I love that sentence so much you don't even have to I was like writers you don't even have to write anything else and then he goes into all the versions of the word Greg yes <laughs> you know you know Gregging mini Gregs Greglets whatever and Greg you know considering don't turn me into a word yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's the the uh, I. I I think, if I'm not mistaken, didn't um, McFadden... Has he won an Emmy already for this, for playing Tom? I feel like I've seen him... I don't know if it was a Golden Globe or, or an Emmy. I can't remember. Because I keep thinking, I wish that the two of them could like just share an Emmy. I feel Tom and Greg should have like a... It's almost like an Abbott and Costello kind of <laughs> thing between them. And clearly Tom is... He's, he's like an evil Bud Abbott, basically. <laughs> Oh, they're a comedy team for the ages. So then we then we go to the boat, the boat where the which I think at this point I don't know if I was clear. Wait, is the boat where the wedding is actually happening? Is it happening on the boat, or is the boat going to be taking them to the wedding? Which we we do see later, so that clarifies it for me. I only asked because I've actually um, been part of a wedding that was, you know, in a similar area on a boat and that was going off, you know, and you see the Brooklyn bridge and everything in the background, but I think they did it on the boat. I don't know if that's what they were doing here. I got confused for a moment because there's that woman that's being spoken to an older woman. It's, and I believe her name is Sylvia. And then I, then I had to figure out, I was like, okay, I'm going to guess that it's got to be Willa's mother because of her familiarity with Willa and the way she's talking about things. I mean, it, that's got to be who she is, right? But, that that was the assumption I made as well. Because the one thing, we, we know it can't be Connor's mother. <laughs> so it's got to be Willa's mother. So later on, we get, the, we get it's, I think it's, it's, it's the tarmac scene, which I guess is where the, the last real scene for Logan in, in the entire thing. And it's between Logan and Tom. Tom gets to be annoyingly awkward as always and amusing to no one but himself. Um, and Carolina, whose name I always forget. And I have to look up. Oh yeah. Her name is Carolina, whatever. And I kept thinking of what you've mentioned in the previous podcast. Um, is Logan referring to that, 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 that night of the, of, of the thousand knives here. Because, you know, he's working on getting rid of Jerry, getting rid of Sid, and the fact that the phrase I think that Tom uses, um, you know, you, or you know, you you push Sid, Roman knifes Jerry on a day's work is like, oh, this is the the night of the knives, not of the long knives, long yeah, knives. Thank you, I couldn't remember what the phrase was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he's putting it in motion. And in true in true uh, Logan fashion, he's doing it while he's in an airplane, getting on an airplane, about to be far away from where the fallout occurs. Oh yeah! Oh again! Oh, always keep your hands clean. <laughs> Push it up. You know. Oh, you know. It's not, it's not simply just passing the buck. It's like no, this is what people in power do. They delegate. They delegate far enough away from themselves that they don't have to worry. It's like what. Hey, it's what Tom has done with Greg a bunch of times, you know, on a small on a smaller scale. That's what that's how Logan's using Tom and and pretty much everyone else he comes into contact with. So we 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 shift back onto the boat and then <laughs> Okay. Now again, I will say other than what you mentioned before, I'm sure what we're watching when we watch in any episode of Succession is 99.999% the writing. But how hilarious is it to watch Roman and Shiv go back and forth and you start, you know, remember we talked about the, uh, who, who said the word fuck the most times on the show? 
Did anyone catch how many fucks there were between Roman and Shiv in this one scene? Because it was, I'm pretty sure they both exceeded double digits. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and, and in no time. My note basically says, tons of fucks here. <laughs> oh yeah it, it, and it was it was just fast boom 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 and then and and we're still and so we still have that nice little frenetic energy because we have you know the, the thing hasn't happened yet there's even that moment when i think tom calls and roman gets pissed off and, and hangs up whatever but he refers to him as an inflatable dicky dick yeah it's <laughs> just another one like again I, I almost think he does it himself, but that's again, that's just how good the acting and the writing is. I, I, and I swear that'll be the last time I mention that on the podcast. But that is what, but it's that kind of, is what leads to, um, Roman having that scene with Jerry, which is not what he wanted to do. It's not what he, when he wanted to do it, but it, it kind of, Jerry won't let it go because, Jerry can see the writing on the wall. She senses what's, there's something going on. She knows Roman well enough. And although he's not as bad as, say, Greg, he's also not exactly hiding the fact that he's got, you know, if he had just said, we, we need to talk later and left it at that, maybe he could have gotten away with it. But he's so awkward and stilted and, and, and nervous about it that there's no way he, she's not going to keep prodding him to get to what it is, which is that they're they're letting her go, and they're going to be hanging the, all this around her neck and so on and so forth. So that whole, I think that's such a huge scene because um, we've already seen this show deal with things like betrayals, of course, you know, like you, know, you, you can name it, whether it's family to family or Tom to Shiv and whatever. And we we haven't gotten to see it much in the way of this weird. Well, Jerry and Roman have probably the most unique relationship of any two characters on any show because it's it's kind of like it's an HR issue beyond any H, even without the things that were sent to me via text, whatever. But there's there's so much there there's there's a there's a there's a mentor student kind of relationship there's certainly there's definitely an obvious you know an overt sexual component to it because that's the way roman handles these kind of things and there's something about jerry that kind of i don't i hate to use the phrase like gets off on that but she kind of does you know she there's a weird enjoyment that she takes out of it and we've seen that in a few scenes over the years whatever so her him being the one holding the knife, so to speak, is just, it's almost, it's like, oh, of course he was going to make you do it. I mean, she didn't say that, but she might as well have. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure she thought something along those lines. Because, you know, the worst part, the only thing worse would be having an absolute incompetent be the person to get rid of you. So you either, either, either get, do it as a level of disrespect or you do it as a way of hurting the person. Having Roman do it is going to hurt her. Um, which makes me think Logan wants this to come off as being personal. And whether it's because of, I can't imagine it's just because of she was sharing a laugh with Hugo about the carry video, but I think the reasons that Logan gives never seem to really feel real to me. It always feels like it's more than that uh, as far as his reasons to wanting to get rid of Jerry. Oh, yeah. And, and I believe that uh... – his message is that she messed up and he never forgot it. And, you know, I, I think there, when she 
entangled herself with Roman, even though it's Roman's fault, you know, he, he probably never forgives her for that. Um, because I, I mean, just like the other show we're going to talk about where a father doesn't care about what his son did, it's the idea of the shame and the disgrace that that brings to somebody in power. And if you think about it, if she does talk about where the bodies are buried, that he can, he can pin the blame on, on, uh, on, on Roman. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's her connection to the, the quote unquote sexual deviancy of his son that he's tried to like, you know, push aside but then when issues happen, like, you know, the, like those aforementioned dick pics, whatever, you know, it's like, really? And then like, if Jerry hadn't been the person in that position, and, 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 and as unfair as this is, I do believe Logan thinks this way. If that had just been, if it had just been people like Frank and Carl and those types, that's not happening. I don't need, I don't need to be hearing about this. I don't need to be hearing that my son does things like this, you know? He was my, he was my last, he was my youngest. Therefore, that means he represents my last hope because, and if he's doing stuff like this, well, then he can't be the guy either because he's, either he says it outright or not. He's not letting Shiv be the person because he's, he's, he's old school. This might, this might as well be taking place, you know, a hundred years earlier, you know, so, you know, he's not going to let, you know, quote unquote, a woman be in charge of his thing. Cause that's, even if he doesn't outright say that, it's pretty clear that's what's been going on. And the battle between him and Kendall, that that that's just the most you know complicated of the three. I think the other two are a little bit more are more simple simpler to see. The Kendall one's always been the most complicated because they and quite frankly they have the most complicated relationship I think of anyone on the show is between for Kendall sure and um, and his dad for sure. But then we have those who aren't quite as complicated yet there are there is so much still to uncover and when i say that i'm obviously or maybe not so obviously talking about connor and initially we get connor with his what seems to be a bizarre preoccupation with with a supposedly inadequate wedding cake and not wanting to see its internal qualities by the way i've i've never heard anyone refer to a cake that way you know but later i mean later ha, ha, uh we we do get the story about the what what we call the the loony cake and the story about how it relates to connor's mom and we hear about that from kendall and they've been trickling in little bits here and there about this whole situation with connor's mom which is very interesting and i, I and the fact that she's you know they've made enough reference that she's obviously she's in a facility somewhere. I think they refer to being, you know, I think Roman being being the class act he is first for being in a funny farm and and things like that throughout the thing. Um, it sounds like it's really dark. <laughs> it's a very dark thing. It's almost gothic sounding. Like, oh, your your mother went nuts and he and now she's locked up in a in a loony bin somewhere. You know, presumably it's maybe some multi million dollar nicey nice place, but who knows. Right. It's it's one of those weird little mysteries of the show and it's like one of those things, do we get to find out about more about it or not? Or do we just get these little details every once in a while be like, Oh, okay. That that's interesting. It tells us a little bit more. Um and it tells us just how kind of either how psychotic Logan possibly was at one time, or maybe Connor's mom really was a total nut. We don't really know. We don't know. It's it's very interesting. No, but but you know, this, that, that whole thing makes me think of, of the crown, you know, where yes. 
the the people with problems when you have people of power they get them away from themselves and isolate them off so as not to bring anything to the bloodline or to the legitimacy of the people in power and uh kind of reminds me of that and uh shockingly enough again I, I think we have to give big props to connor that you know th- this season this season so far if you had to rate the four kids and how they're handling everything that's happening who would have put connor as the number one draft pick hmm. uh and right now you know he's sort of found a weird um almost Almost like I don't want to say given up, but like sort of let go of of all the emotion of it, and sort of found a, a weird zen with Zill, with uh, with uh, Willa, with his dad, and you know delivers another couple of great lines in this episode. Yeah, right. It, it, the fact that he would be the one to find some you know his own you know everlasting moments of zen isn't. Super shocking, um, because he if, if if because he is he's certainly the most laid back of the four, <laughs> you know, because he's not involved in all that. He he took himself out of that game, you know, almost from the get go. I, I guess whatever. Um, but uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's the it's the matter of fact way he is about it, because it's not. So I probably would would shift away from referring to it as in a Zen kind of way, especially feel, especially as I feel that's kind of a Kendall kind of a thing to a certain extent. He's surprisingly pragmatic. And I don't, yeah. and I don't, and for someone who was going to launch a presidential bid, that was just utterly ridiculous. You don't expect that person to be that very matter of fact, pragmatic and very, and, and, and seeing things clearly for what they are, because those, it, it contradicts this ridiculous thing, even though he said it's to get in the conversation. And then it's like, okay, that's a lot of money to spend to be in a conversation, but it's because you've been kind of isolated from, you know, the monolithic media empire family you're part of. And thus you are seen in the, that media as you're not, you're not taken seriously either. This was his, I think it's all about need to be taken seriously, which then gets to, you know, how Logan referred to his other children as not being serious people. Oh, look at that. All comes around. Look at that. That's so good. Anyway. <laughs> well, I, I will say this about Connor. Yep. And I give him credit that he was the most Logan-like about the whole thing. Because while they're all scrambling to try to do things, but dealing with these real emotions, he actually mentions at one point, like, should we make, should we release a statement? Like, thinking how it could help him and and willa to put something out they have like just a brief conversation about it right and i think he's thinking you know hey if i want to stay in the conversation for my presidential bid he, he's very on very early on talking about using his dad's death while they all want to keep it quiet to control this control that he's not thinking about anything other than for himself right 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 yeah that that is very logan-esque you're right in that um, speaking of Logan, we have, uh, it was around this time, um, we have that moment where Roman is leaving a message for Logan. Oh, the message. The, and it's one of those painful, kind of, like, oh, no, no, that's like, that, 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 that message is not going to go well for you because we don't know at this point what's actually going to happen in this episode. Um, 
but he, you know, he's questioning, is he just being shitty with him? And then it all goes to, he finally calls, refers to him as being a cunt. And I was like, oh, okay. There it is. We're, we went there. Okay. <laughs> it's, it, it's going to be one of those, uh, are we, are we, and I, there was that moment I was thinking, is he going to be trying to figure out a way to get, to retract that message? <laughs> Can he do that from miles away? Does he know how? Uh, but that eventually leads to one of our many, uh, scenes with, with Kendall, Roman, and Shiv all together. Cause at this point, they're speculating about what it is that Logan's doing. And, you know, if he's clearly not going to be showing up to the wedding, but what is he doing as far as Matt is concerned? Roman is still obviously not disclosing that he's kind of in with his dad at this point. So you have that little game and subterfuge going on here. And there's kind of a nice moment. When I think it's during that conversation, um, when Greg comes in to try to interact with him and they freeze out Greg really fiercely. Like, no, we don't. And I kept thinking, yeah, they have no need to ever deal with you. Why would they even address you at all? You might, you, you might as well be, you know, one of the waiters at this point, as far as they're concerned, I think. Yeah, totally. So, um, at the, you know, and also this is, I think the first, I think it's, this is the first time I, if I'm wrong, I apologize. I think we see that she is clearly ignoring a call that she's getting from Tom. And instead they're realizing that someone's got to tell Connor that Logan is not going to show up. And I believe Shiv has elected the wedding Grinch to go take care of that. Cause I think yes. when says, Oh, she, he likes you better than us. And I was like, well, it's not that big a surprise. Because <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the other two, you're so likable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they elect her to go drop the bomb on, on Connor that he's not coming. Right. So obviously that that someone, that, that call does go through. And then that begins, that, that pretty much begins the cascade of, of emotions that takes over the rest of this episode. When the call comes through, and they're speaking to Tom. And this is when you're like, wait, is this really happening? Because at first, it, it doesn't sound like it's real. It, it sounds like it's, it's, it's some sort of a story. And, and that, and that alone is shocking because it's like, what, what, where, what's the, what's the end game here? What, why, what, is this just to, 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 to see how they would, re- Logan doesn't need, to, doesn't have the time to be playing emotional mind games with them at this point. Why, why would he be doing this? Why is, why is Tom doing this? And that's why I start going, wait, is, is this real? But they weren't showing us anything. They kept, they kept referring to chest compressions, but we, at this point yet, we weren't seeing it. We weren't seeing it yet. And even there was a certain point where we saw someone, we saw pushing, but we still couldn't even see a person. To be right. more sure, it wasn't until there's was a, a little bit of cluster where we can tell, we can make out that oh, it's an older person. You saw a little gray. We never see his face, but you kind of see a little bit. You can kind of you realize, oh, oh God, that is him. And 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 you have this question that happens over and over, where they keep asking, "Is he dead? Is he gone?" They're asking on the plane, "Is he dead? Is he gone?" And finally, they get to the point where it's what you said before. It's People are, you know, you have one person accepting that he's dead and one person not believing that he's dead. They haven't even gotten the chance. To, and then, then they bring Shiv into it, who, you know, and I love that there's that, that, there's that moment where she questions why she wasn't told 
almost immediately and they, they explained the circumstance of what was going on because they this is when they start to have all their final words with their father by with the idea of Tom holding having the phone held by his ear. And we can talk about their their the different things each one of them says to him, um, as you re- referred to before. Um and what I love about all three and I think every viewer did it well, did as well. It's so, it's done in such a believable way. There's not, not just the rawness and the emotion of it. It's, it's the, and it's the, it's the inability to articulate yourself without repeating yourself over and over and not, this isn't a eulogy. This isn't your last words and you're reacting and, and they're in shock when this is happening. You know, they're clearly in shock. And each, and you can, you can, each one can be the best or mo- most compelling reaction the way, depending how you want to look at it, you know, based on how we know how they felt about their father. But each one is really interesting, you know, and we can talk, I mean, we, you know, you know, we, you know, Ro- Roman seems to be the most apologetic and he's, he's probably thinking there's the message he left earlier. And I think there's a certain point where he even thinks that might have even played a part, which is like, well, do you really think your dad would have a, <laughs> oh, you, well, you called him a cunt, really? I'm pretty sure that wouldn't happen. No. You know, but, you know, and, and Shiv being almost like a child, but, you know, talking to her daddy and stuff. And Kendall, you know, alternating between how he loves his father, but he hasn't, he can't forgive his father. And right. even saying that, I, I was just, it's such a powerful, it, it's such a powerful string of scenes for each one. It's like each one has their own little kind of like wow moment in those phone conversations. They all do. And I think the, the sort of, um, the sort of underappreciated thing that can go under the radar here watching this is the way that Tom starts out and changes subtly throughout the phone call. Yeah. Um, that he starts out like, Hey, you know, your dad's had an incident. The air service is working on him. You know, just thought you guys should know we're in the air. And then it's like, I I think you should talk to him. Is he dead? Tom is he, they're working on him. You should talk to him. And, as it goes on and on, the way that Matthew McFadden plays Tom, he conveys like the sense that things are are, are going from bad to worse uh, in a really subtle way. And I like the way they played it, that with all the kids, he's super compassionate yeah. to all of them. Like, I mean, it, it, it could have been cheap and and been vicious, but like he really, really plays it with a lot of heart. The, the fascinating thing with Tom there, and you're absolutely right about all that, but <laughs> I have to be the one to say it at the same time. Um, I also have to point that, that compare, it's funny how Tom can, can actually elicit sympathy f- from us based on some of his situations with Shiv over the last couple seasons. And then we need to be reminded, yeah, that's sort of true, but you do remember that Tom might be the most sociopathic of all of them because he did everything you said there. And it was, you know, to be beyond commendable. He's, he's so human and, 
and, you know, just compassionate in the way he needs to be at this point and trying to do the right thing. And then it's not, mom- it's not but moments later where he calls Greg. And it's a crazy call because, you know, it's in total lock, you know, but, you know, putting everything in total lockdown. But people should know that I was with him. Yes. <laughs> you know? So he's attaching himself. <laughs> to Logan's death in a way to elevate his own importance. And not because, you know, I'm clearly was, you know, I was in the inner circle. I was right there with him when he died. <laughs> he, he is, but I'll defend him. I'll defend him at least this little bit to say that the, the thing he does recognize in the moment is that whatever Logan was, Logan was his protection. Oh, and yeah. now his protection's gone. And oh, oh yeah. And as much as Logan used him, he and he was using Logan as well, that um, he, he makes moves he has to for survival. Mm-hmm. He wasn't three steps ahead to screw Logan over. He just made those moves knowing now he now he was basically defenseless. Oh, yes. In survival mode. And that's not, so but so it's commendable that he can react in that way. Unlike, say, someone like Carrie who just seems like she's gone totally bonkers. Um, did someone say something along the lines of, she looks like she just caught a foul ball at Yankee State? <laughs> something like that. There's, I think it's, uh, I think it's Frank or, or somebody said like, I'm trying to see if I wrote it down. Something to the effect of like, uh, like, yeah, why don't we let something that like give her a name, draft the statement, like joking that, and I think Tom even says, like, when she walks in the back, he's like, whoa, <laughs> like, like she comes in and, and with the, you know, sort of the board of trust, the, the board of directors, sort of uh, upper management people. And they're just like, whoa, like she really thinks now um, that, that she can contribute something to this. And she's way out of her depth and she's way out of her head. I mean, she's clearly in shock. Yeah, I don't think she saw this coming, and either whatever feelings she may or may not have had for Logan, um, other than the fact that she would be someone who, as they say, um, like you, I think uh, the cliche we used earlier about Jerry, um, someone who knows where the bodies are buried is not someone you can just easily just totally get rid of. But I can't imagine she, I can't imagine they will want her to be playing any part in things moving forward. It'll be interesting to see how they handle that situation. It's probably going to be something to someone you can just simply, you know, buy off or not, because I don't think they, she has any, unless there's something written that we don't know about, which who knows, you never know. Um, I don't think she would have any, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Leverage. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, as far as any uh, decisions, as far as the company and everything, because at this point they're trying to, as they say, create a timeline. Because right. you know, obviously, a lot of it is going to be concerns about you know the, the market once the, once word leaks and it does, you know, and and the impact that's going to have on the value of the company and and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that's really great back to the back to the boat. Um, and, and our, our, and our, and our trio that we always talk about. Um, and then they eventually do go to bring Connor in on it and to tell him what's going on because, you know, it's his way. And I love, it was interesting that they didn't even have an, and I'm not saying it would have been cliched if they did it. I thought it was more interesting. There really wasn't even any question whether or not to go tell Connor. They just said, we need to go tell Connor. No one says, 
wait a minute, should we tell him? You know, what, what, like, no. They, and which makes perfect sense for the way they would view the wedding themselves anyway. You know, that's like, no, we just we got to tell him. You know, um, but before the, the, the argument between all of them about whether or not their father's actually dead, I, I just think that's really interesting because their view of whether their father is dead or not is very similar to the way they've been react, been acting about their father as far as the business and, and for the last several months where, you know, it's Rowan still wants to believe something which the other two know. No, you got to wake up and you, you're not being, re- you're not being real here. And, you know, it's just, it's almost just another version of that, I think. Oh yeah, totally. And, I did find the line. They called her Chuckles the Clown. Chuckles the Clown. I'm Mary. That's Ty- what they called Carrie when I'm, when she was weird. A Mary Tyler Moore reference. Of course, every TV writer would have to reference a great show like that. Um, and then I love that 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 out of nowhere, like Hugo shows up. <laughs> and, and and the question I had when Hugo walks in is, who's he talking to? Yeah, that's a good question. Because if someone contacted him, whatever you know. No wonder if the word got out, because word did get out, apparently. But um, let's see. I would guess. Hmm. My guess is probably, based on the way stuff was going on the plane, it was probably Carolina. Because yeah. she, seemed to be the, she seemed to be the badass in charge on yeah. that plane. I agree. You're right. So I'm thinking, I don't know. I don't know. If Frank and Carl would do that. I mean, I could see it, but Carolina seems to be more the more kind of way of going about things. So yeah, that would make more, more sense to me. And it's around that time when Hugo shows up and with the phone, that's when they find out that the that they've stopped the CPR. And this is it's the point where they're saying, "Oh no! If if you didn't think it was official before, right now he's dead." And that's where they start getting into the whole business of the statement that's going to follow all this, you know, because they have to be concerned about, you know, you, you, you go about this the wrong way. You can set the stock prices plummeting and which could literally you, I'm going to use it right today. Uh, literally cost them billions of dollars, you know, yeah. it goes the wrong way. But what's interesting during this argument, conversation, debate, negotiation, whatever you want to call it. Um, there are things that they say. And it's always interesting who who comes up with this, who, who says certain things. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, is it not Kendall, of all people, who is um, seems to almost take offense and repeatedly says that we're not estranged? Yes. When that is said. Yes. Which is interesting because if there was ever someone who was at any, at least for any junk, chunk of time, estranged from the family and from Logan, it's Kendall. You know, <laughs> I, I thought that was like, and the way he kept hitting that, and I kept thinking you're hit, you're hitting that for a different reason, right? Because you're 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 talking about you, you're not talking about the three of you and the situation which is happening right now as far as the company. You're talking about you and your father. Right. And, and, and now, you know, re- even if you haven't forgiven him, that doesn't mean that you're not estranged. Right. And and he actually points out, I mean, to set the timeline that the night before they just saw each other the night before 
and in his mind, I mean, he's hanging on to that as a way to say, like, we, we, we had some sort of relationship last night. So we're not estranged today. Right, right, right. Absolutely. And when you realize that, it's like, I love that he's making that meeting, if you want to call it that, at the karaoke place, <laughs> which wasn't exactly warm and fuzzy. <laughs> and, the, and, and especially on their end, for the most part, until Logan finally, you know, can only keep up that facade or veneer or whatever you want to call it, if you even believe it was even par- somewhat sincere for so long. And he, you know, does drop the, you're not serious people line on them, whatever. Um, but that he's trying to use that or, or, you know, what's the word I'm like, you know, kind of, he, it's kind of creating a, a little bit of a false narrative as far as their last interaction. Um, so at this point, the, the, it, things, I, I love the fact that this is an episode that could just play just pure, sad, dark, and emotional, and yet they still have room to do crazy, almost, you know, veep office, bizarre humor-like things, where, you know, they realize that Jerry's been briefed, but they're talking about making a public, and there's, there's a, the point where they start talking about, well, maybe they can keep the plane circling, <laughs> When, when in fact, at least at least one person there still isn't totally sure he's dead. So what, right. if we're going to keep the plane circling. Aren't, aren't you kind of guaranteeing he'll be dead if he isn't already? Right. But um, I'm going to use a word that I used about someone else uh, earlier because apparently I wrote it in my notes. So I, I got to reuse it, right? Um, in my, I see my note here. I wrote about Kendall. I wrote that Kendall is, you know. Um, Amazingly enough, Kendall is rationally pragmatic about everything right now that they are doing and will do is going to be remembered as what they did when their father died. And I went, that is such, that that, that might have wrested the crown away, at least for the moment, from Connor as being so perfectly self-aware and realizing, hey, we do have to be careful of what we're doing and how we're, because this is going to be remembered. There people, there are witnesses. This is going to, and it's going to be public soon. You know, people are going to be. This will. This. This is. This is a tape that's going to be played for years. You right. know, I really thought that was something. And and I I felt like he was uh, talking with two meanings too. That it was, it was like all the people around us are going to remember how we acted, and we're going to be doing. We still have to do a billion dollar deal with all of them. And the SEC, you know, like if we're manipulating stock prices or committing fraud or doing stuff like this could this could all end up in a courtroom. Well, if if we do or say the wrong thing. Right. Exactly. So in the midst of all this, there is also, you know, one might remember, hey, you know what? This episode was titled Connor's Wedding. So what happened to that? And we do get the scene, a little scene between Connor and Willa. And I think it's, I, I, I love the interaction between them, which really, and you mentioned a bit of it before, about how he feels, um, just referring to how she feels about him and stuff along those lines. But I, I, I kind of just like the, the back and forth about the actual wedding itself more. Um, about, you know, let's cancel. I think it's already canceled. And then you realize 
after they talk about how she feels about him or not, or or, the, or is it about the money? I love the way she acts about it, and you and and you can see it's like it is, but it isn't. It's not you know, and I, I and like and, and at this point in his life and what he's gone through and what he we heard him say at the end of that previous episode is like you couldn't have given him a better answer. Right. Because there's nothing that sounds insincere about what you just said. You're not putting him on. You're not professing, you know, you don't have big pink hearts exploding in your eyes when you're speaking. But it's not like you don't have feelings for him. You know, it's not like you don't have some form of that kind of a feeling for him at this point, at least. And I think the biggest thing that she reassures him is she's not going to abandon him. Right, which has been an issue that he's had, obviously. Yeah, yeah. He has another line that that I just that he delivers, you know, devastatingly. He he says, "My father's dead, and I feel old." Ah, oh, that's a great line. Yeah, I forgot about that. Why did I make a note about that one? God damn it! So while that's happening, we do get some back and forth about, and and this is now what's going on about who's going to make or write the statement. And as we're watching it, I think most can't help but think, are these three really in any mind space or condition to be writing any kind of a statement regarding their fa- the passing of their father and and the situation with the company and, and what, whatever else might be said in any uh, podium-style, press conference-style, whatever? Um, but they seem to be pretty dead set on doing it. Um, they also realize there are a few other matters that need to be dealt with because they they got to be practical at the same time. And obviously the big sale of Waystar to uh, Gojo is, is one of the big ones. Which And so it means, well, someone's got to call Matson to reassure him about you know, how they would be moving forward or not. And that's got to be Roman. So once again, once again, Roman is put into the fray, although it's going to be a bit more comfortable talking to him than, than to Jerry. Although he does have that scene again with Jerry, who seen, who I'm thinking at this point, and I'll be curious to see the subsequent episodes, but my impression is Jerry is looking like she's going to try to be playing a Costanza here. Because, because, except everybody knows it, but since it never went, it was never officially done. It, it, it's an interesting legal issue, uh, you know, because it doesn't. With him not there, it then becomes the decision of well, well, maybe the three of them. You know, Roman doesn't want to get rid of her, and I don't know if the other two would have a reason to get rid of her or not. What they, I don't know how they feel about any of those people. We don't even know. I mean, the next seven episodes, one of the things we're, they're going to be sorting out is like, okay, who is actually in charge here? Because you do have a board of directors, though. Just because it's, you know, the family company doesn't necessarily mean the family's going to get to run the company. I'm imagining that's going to be a lot of what's going to be um, the, the, the the plotting uh, for the next seven episodes. But this it's just the, the thing with Jerry, and she's talking about being sad. And it's interesting because, you know, I think we all really like the Jerry character. I think those of us who watched... Um, what was the show that we used to watch? Began with the letter R, with the the fellow who I lo- love the show. I was a big fan of it. Oh, Rectify. Rectify. Thank you. She played the mom. Right. A very different character. <laughs> she yeah. Oh yeah. Here, yeah. I, I was trying to describe it to someone recently. It's like, imagine almost the entire opposite of Jerry, and that's the character she played on Rectify for the most part. You know. 
Kind of like when someone sees the actress uh, Frances Conroy and they see her playing a, a total nutcase every other season of American Horror Story because apparently she's one of Ryan Murphy's favorites, so he puts her in all the time. And it's like, and if someone had never seen Six Feet Under, it's like, yeah, you know, you should see the first few seasons of Six Feet Under. She's like, she's like a, she's like a meek Edith Bunker. Oh yeah, <laughs> a, 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 like a loving mother. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I, uh, I I think just Jerry's not fired because the the firing never came. Right, and she's she's playing she's playing the part, you know, for survival now. I mean, everybody's going into to full on survival mode, and and she's hanging on to while she can hang on, and you know, who knows? Roman might Roman might not go through with it now, and she might be his number one ally. I would suspect that's the most likely way to go, although not the show doesn't take predictable turns, but I wouldn't necessarily call it predictable, it's just necessary. You know, plus you're not getting you, you already got rid of you got rid of the you got rid of your biggest character with seven episodes to go. Yeah. I don't know if you're gonna be starting to get rid of a, a bunch of others that quickly, especially people who are so, you know, linked to so many other things. I I I and I think she's a character who has so many cards that she can play. So she, she definitely has ways to survive that you know that others don't even have. She she's a fan favorite too. I mean I, I think people people like her a lot. And I wanna to touch briefly on something too that that happened that after the last call when they're talking about circling the plane, uh, it, it's interesting that that Roman is still full on denial. Shiv is basically falling apart, and Kendall goes into the like, like, no, get me the best heart surgeon, get me the best people, and like pulls the, you know, I'm a powerful person. Get me his doctor. Get me the number one heart doctor. I don't care about the air service crew. We're gonna do this and to see each of them react differently. Uh Um, you know, having been in that situation, uh, anybody's ever been in it. I mean, that, that there are people that act that way. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it was very, very believable reactions to all of them going through that, that shock. Right. And of course, as all that, all that's for naught. I mean, it, nothing ever comes of it. Right. Uh, you wonder if you, you wonder if a call is even placed at, at a certain point. Um, so we, so we, we kind of, Skip to you know them eventually you know you know bring the boat back helicopter hey now they get to, now they get to ride on the helicopter and then we see the jet has landed and then we see the ambulances and then we see a body and then even though at this point there was no doubt I think for anybody um, well there well there it is you even see things like the um, the security dude that we've talked about a bunch of times. And his reaction, and you know, like, oh, that's right. You were his, you were his only pal, right? <laughs> and the guy genuinely looks sad. I mean, like, yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. Def- there was definitely a, a connection there between them. And then we do have that brief uh, statement that sh- that Shiv is the one to give, and which makes sense to have Shiv be the one to give it. I, I feel because um, she doesn't have the she doesn't have the taint that Kendall ha- still has. And she's going to probably just be uh, be able to deliver that and more sincerely and more believably than someone like Roman can at this point. So it, it makes sense. Um, and by the way, in my <laughs> it's my last it's it's literally my last note. <laughs> my note is, wow, they really killed him. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that's my final note on the show. Because all of a sudden the credits started, like, and everybody's like, oh, they're playing like a really, you know, kind of really somber uh, version of the succession theme. It's like going, oh, wait. Wait, wait, he's dead? <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the, I mean, it, it sort of reminded me, you know, the the we've seen that in other stuff. I think Game of Thrones did that with the red wedding theme at the end after after that episode. But like the theme was like, I mean, they were basically saying, okay, all you people who think, you know, this is a funny show and these people are ruthless. And even the characters are breaking the fourth wall in a way and saying, is he really dead? Like, is this really happening? They're telling you people he's dead. And like, it's a new Mm -hmm. game. And, and, um, I, I thought there was a cool callback in this where they're walking out and Kendall shows the stock, like the effect Logan's, the news this getting out has had right. on the stock. Right. And, and he says, and shows it to the other two and says, says that's dad. <laughs> and it's funny that he says that and shows it to him because Logan had said, everybody is a market when he had that conversation with the security guard and talked about people as economic units and the kid and, and Kendall shows that to the kids. And I I thought that was a, a, an interesting callback. Yeah. You're absolutely right about that. I hadn't even thought of that. Good catch. So yeah. So then, then that's pretty much the episode and we're sitting there and the credits are rolling. And then we see the, you know, this for the rest of the season on succession and we see you know you know scene after scene of like ooh ah ooh ooh ah ooh ooh, ooh I can't I can't wait and part of me is like wait oh but the three were working so well together are they going to be opposed to each other <laughs> you know and it's got it's going to be uh, you know probably you know, alliances made and broken and so on and so forth it's going to be a fun little ride there but it's going to be weird. I mean, even like your, your your first episode, it doesn't have him playing a part in it. Beyond, I mean, his presence is always going to be on the show. You can't get around it. I mean, it's like I said, like the word I used early to, uh, early this evening. It, he's monolithic in that sense, and I'm sure he's going to be. Although I, I swear to God, there better not be a scene anywhere. I, I, I don't recall him having one, so maybe that it won't happen. There's no big portraits of him anywhere. Right, we haven't seen. He's not. That's not. Not, not that I recall. Yeah, no, that's, that's a little cheesy, anyway. Um, because I was like, no, 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 don't do that. There'll be. I'm sure there'll be something else that will somehow symbolically represent him. That will be used as kind of a Logan totem at some point, you know. But um, I don't. I'm very curious if he filmed any other scenes for the remaining seven episodes. I would be very shocked if he didn't. If it's some sort of Ursat's flashback, maybe maybe we wouldn't get that to the final episode or something along those lines. I I would be very surprised if if he if that hadn't happened. But considering the the way they went about this in such an unconventional way compared to most shows that we've watched, I shouldn't expect him to do anything conventional for the remaining seven. I just feel you gotta give. Brian Cox, one more scene though, can't don't you? You just you, you got give me give, you know what? Give me a post credit scene at the end of the finale, you know, where he's he's, yeah, on, where he, he's on the moon with you know Ted Williams' head or something, where he's being named to the board of directors in hell, like, you know, <laughs> yes. just, you know, so, something like that. I, I it, it is funny that a character that's so universally terrible 
in many ways that that we we're going to miss him. Oh, absolutely. That, that I, I think that the the trick of Logan Roy was whatever he lacked in, in a million departments. Boy, did he have charisma. I think what will be one of the things that will be missed was while we clearly we love the show and we love the interaction between these characters and and the fact that they can be so you know clever and cruel to each other at the same time with their words and and even their actions at times but it's those occasional moments because at the end of the day as we've said in previous podcasts you know his his flaw might be the fact he actually still loves them and that kind of gets in the way of some of the things he does. But it's those little moments he's had with them, which there aren't that many, but there have been a few. We can, I think we, we can remember. I mean, before it all goes horribly wrong in, into the next season, like when he first is dealing with Kendall about, and when, when the, 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 the horrible accident happens in England, initially you're like, oh my God, he's, he's being a real father. He's really, you know, whatever. And then obviously where that goes, yeah, you know, it becomes horrible, but there's, there's a humanity there between him and Kendall, which we even see occasionally in that second season, you know, it's just, it's going, it's, it's a little bit of that combined with a lot of, uh, you're not, you're not a great person. And he's had, he's had moments like that with each person, with Rome, with Shep, with, you know, you know, it's also surprising. And I don't know if, um, I have no idea if anything either a happened to the actress or if she had another commitment that somehow tr- um, trumped being on succession. I don't know. I don't, I've never read anything about it, so I don't know. I'm surprised that we haven't seen um, his actual wife. I mean, was it Marsha? Isn't that her name? I think that's what her name was. It's like, we haven't seen her in a while. Yeah. I mean, we know he's been doing stuff with the, with the, the Carrie, but he was still technically married. Yeah, I mean, if if there's, there, I'm, I believe there is going to be a funeral episode because I do think I heard you know, I, I, when they were when he was on Colbert, they were talking about him showing up um, when they were filming a funeral scene in uh, in Manhattan at at the you know some huge church. I don't know if it was St. Patrick's or not. I wouldn't be surprised if it was, but there might be issues filming there. I'm not sure. Um, which also threw the paparazzi off because they were trying. They're all speculating on who the <laughs> who had been killed on the show, but, and they were the people that they eliminated were the three actors that they saw showing up there. And one of them <laughs> was Brian Cox. Yeah. So it was like, you know, so we know it's not, you know, it's not Jeremy strong or, or, um, uh, Culkin or, <laughs> or Brian Cox who could be in the coffin. It's like, well, turns out it's one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty slick. I, uh, I think the one point we we missed that I just wanted to throw in, I, I thought it was really uh, I thought it was really clever that Roman was the only one that actually went and saw his body. Yes. That that like Kendall walked out. I think Kendall wanted to and froze like he just couldn't do it and made an excuse. Shiv was emotionally unable to. Right. But, you know, the, I thought that was sweet that Roman was the one that actually went to see his dad's body. Yeah. I, I thought that was an interesting take for all three of them. Um, I'm assuming if they're going to do a funeral, it's probably going to be an open casket situation. So they, they probably will be seeing his body in state or, or at the funeral or whatever, but that's not the same as, you know, 
in a body bag. That's you know, right. To be honest, even if it's a really nice one, uh, you know, because only the best will do for the rich. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a Versace bag. Yes. All right. Oof, I'm I'm almost as, almost as exhausted from talking about it as I was from watching it. So let us adjourn from this succession conversation, and now we can open up a dialogue about our next HBO series, which also cranked out a crackerjack good episode, if we do say so ourselves, of its own. And that would be Perry Mason, Chapter 14 of Perry Mason. Now, this was an episode that once again hit the highs and lows for all of our, I like to say, because I just love the word, our intrepid characters. And we could see how frayed the emotions of the trio can can be and how raw they are, leading to some moments and outbursts that either they are already regretting or may soon wish they never did or said. Um, I think the, the sense of impending or instant regret is going to be a thing for several of the characters on this show right now. So, And we'll obviously be touching on these as we go through the episode. Because we begin this episode, we begin it with a pair of sneakers hanging on a wire. It's those Converse that we heard so much about with that um, Ozzy Jackson's, I believe. Now, the interesting thing, yeah, you know, there's a, you know, this kid tries to get them down, and when he gets them down off the wire, that's when he sees um, the blood on the laces, and obviously what that must mean, and that's when we get the little opening credit for Perry Mason with the kid in front, which is done really nicely. Um, the interesting thing with the, the, the shoes on the wire, now, shoes on the wire represents a few different things depending who you talk to. The most traditional thing, especially when you look at this being the 1930s, was, number one, it signifies someone has died. Number two, it often would signify someone who was a gang member or, you know, or, or even organized crime had died. And those were, that's what those shoes would represent. Now, in, la- in later years, you know, like the era of the wire, for example, but I'm not talking about TV, I'm talking about actual real life. Sometimes it's seen that, you know, having sneakers or whatever hanging off a wire um, also implies this is where drugs are being dealt, you know, like off a street corner where drugs. Um, that's one of those things that's actually been contradicted by a lot of people who say that's not actually so because that, that there are plenty of places where there aren't drugs being dealt, whatever. So I think it's possible that that has been taken by some to be used for that over the years. But the most traditional use of it is someone has died. And it, and, and usually it's someone who's connected. In this case, you know, it was part of a gang or, or something like that. Um, and that's what I think this is representing. The fact that it might be off a street corner where they were doing drugs. That I think they were just, you know, hedging the bets. Okay, we're, we're covering all the things this thing means. <laughs> but I don't know if actually the drug connection was really something that those things were represented back in the 1930s. I think if this was the 2000s, maybe it did. But I don't think it did in the 1930s. No, I I, I think... That that Ozzy Jackson's dead. Oh no, he's ab- Oh, he's absolutely dead. I mean, that goes without saying at this point. It's just does it mean more than just like did they? But they did they deliberately hang them off of? The, was that the street corner where they're also dealing drugs right now? Maybe. I don't. I, I I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't see that it was, but it might have been. And I can't. So I can't say that it was or it wasn't for sure. Well, it could be because later that kid's dealing drugs there. Yeah. Uh, and, so, you know, when Paul sees him. So, like I said, I, I think they might be doubling down on it, but you know, I don't know if that's what that actually meant back in the '30s. But it definitely meant the other stuff. Um, but they might, but if, if it did mean that as well, then it then it has multiple meanings. Um, 
So after that, we we get that nice little moment where Drake is serving Holcomb a subpoena, and it's nice because there's always that kind of going to be that animosity between them, and not just because of the obvious racial issue. You know, we we hear Holcomb actually muttering, calling him a monkey before he approaches, whatever. But because Holcomb represents the the very thing that Drake had to get away from, you know, p- police corruption. You know. Yeah, and and. I love this move by Perry. It, it, it's a move I've employed before, and that is subpoena somebody who really doesn't want to go to court. Right. Um, it, even for inconvenience or something that could be embarrassing or whatever. Um, and, you know, Perry uses a real tactic because he knows even if Holcomb gets up, there's going to be questions from the people he works for as to why he's testifying in a case like this. And when Perry starts asking some uncomfortable questions in the press, it's going to bring major heat down on him. Not to mention his underworld people won't like that at all. Right. And, and let me, let me, let me me rip you off and use one of your, let me just say (laughs) that this might be, Holcomb and let's just say the actor Eric Lang. It's Eric. Uh, is it Eric Lang? I or, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think it's Eric Lang. If, if I'm wrong, I apologize. Or you can look it up or something. Um, I think it's his best moment. It, 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 this best episode for him in the series so far. I, I, Absolutely. I, I mean, it's interesting because he's he even despite the thing he says about Drake there and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I I, I kind of want to call him sort of kind of likable, or at least under. He's you know what? You can always like a villain that you under who's understandable, and they're not just you know they're not just you know doing it for for the sake of being evil or whatever <laughs> or, or just because of money. Like there's more to it than that. And he, he you can almost imagine if the show was focused on Holcomb as your main character instead of you know the. Uh, these lawyers and whatever, and so-called lawyers who seem to be more like private investigators than lawyers anyway, except for a few moments in this episode. But, you know, <laughs> where it's like, oh, he, you know, you know, Holcomb was a man who probably was part, you know, wanted to do the right thing, but he just got battered down by the system and he basically gave in because it was the, it was really the only way to go. And, you know, he's, he's got a family and this is, you know, he got boxed in and now he can rationalize all the things he does because he's, he's doing it. He's doing the wrong thing for the right reasons, you know, right. you know like, like many characters that we watched on other shows we used to podcast about and so on and so forth. Right. He's, he's, he's like a, you know, 1930s Vic Mackey. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so speaking of Perry, we, we do see a Perry is not just adding locks, but he's crazy. He's adding these crazy chains, you know, they're chained to cabinets in the other room to, 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 to keep, you know, people from being able to break into his house and beyond also seeing that that train set has been, you know, nicely dismantled at this point. But I couldn't help but think, even though it's a beautifully done angle on him leaving the house via the fire escape, and I love the shooting straight down. It's kind of it's like, oh, this did someone someone channeling just a little bit of Hitchcock here? It feels a little Hitchcocky in here, or whatever. But I have to confess, I was like, wait a minute, can't someone just get into? <laughs> There's a fire escape, and it's like that doesn't. That doesn't look that hard to get into. I, I set, think I think I could break into that. There's glass, you know. You're in. Set, set, same thought I had, but I think the only difference is, as I thought about it, that um, at nighttime Perry will 
most likely be home. And during the day, someone and during the, the day, someone escape. would see you climbing up the fire escape. Oh no! But people still. I, I hell, I've been. I wouldn't care. I've been locked out and got into my fire escape when I was a kid all the time. But I've, I've still thought the same. I thought thought the same thing. Like, if you go out that way, you can't lock it. Somebody could come in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he does all that. I kept thinking, well, how do you get back? Are you going to get back into the fire escape? Because I don't see how you get into that front door with that chain like that. No. <laughs> I'm very confused. I was like, I don't know. Because uh, if you're going to do that, like, why aren't you pushing like a bed up against the door at this point or something? Um, we get a little brief moment between Della and Anita where um, Anita makes the offer to her that to move in with her. Um and it's interesting because you that that look on Della's face, and um, it doesn't seem like she want she would want to do it, or maybe it's just about the fact she hasn't resolved matters with Hazel at this point yet, and she's still feeling guilty about that situation, or or maybe it's just it's just it's too, maybe it's a too much too soon. I, I'm not sure, but it definitely seemed at this point in the episode. This was not something she felt comfortable doing at this point. Although, obviously, she does change her mind later on when things seem to be going really well for them. It's an episode of highs and lows, for sure, for the characters. I think it was... I mean, it was the equivalent of Della taking I Love You to the next level really quickly. And I I got the impression... I don't know that Della didn't want to do it. I just think that she was surprised by it and unsure in that moment how she felt about it and once it settled you know it, she felt like it was the right thing but as you alluded to she had some unfinished business before she could agree to do it right i also think there's so much that della deals with which she's not in control of you know because she's not in she can't control her destiny as far as fulfilling her you know her, her desires to become a lawyer because she's always there's all the things she has to defer to and deal with and and, and also there's her entire personal life and how she has to live that life you know in, in to a certain extent in secret and you can't talk about it to this person or that person so she's trying to control and this is something where it wasn't a thought she had it was a thought anita had and i think it kind of took her by you know like oh that it's someone else making a decision or, or even though she wasn't making a decision, but it, I, I think it's a thought. I think she would have preferred that she had that thought first. If that right. Any sense? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's given up some of her power. And I think the, I think really when she sort of made her mind up is the idea that if something incredible happens to you, who's the first person you call. And later in the episode, you know, she has her shining moment in court and what does she do? She runs out and calls Della. Right. I mean, right, runs right. out and calls Anita. Yeah. And like, you know, the, the, unconsciously in that moment, the first person you think of to reach out to is probably the person that's most important to you. Right. And, and didn't and didn't she in a previous episode say something about leaving some of her things there? Didn't yes. She? Okay. So so she definitely, I mean, I, I, I don't want to act like I didn't remember that she did sort of open the door. But there's a difference between having some... The difference between having something at someone's house or having part of a drawer at someone's house and moving in with a person. That's, oh, yeah. And, yeah. and especially considering their situation, which is what would make her be a bit more um, sensitive to the idea, uh, I, right. I would think. So let, let, let's let's get to court. And we have Milligan 
with that fellow who's testifying about the the gold coin, the gold coin. I love the gold coin because you know it it's scratched on one side and you know so no anyway anyway uh, wrong coin wrong show wrong wrong everything okay <laughs> <laughs> that's a Batman reference sorry people anyway they're talking about the rarity of the gold coin and after that um, because Perry th- there's no point in cross examining this fellow there's not you know it's just pure facts he's delivering to something it's not, not going to make a difference here but the prosecution rather smugly and and somewhat unexpectedly rests. And then they they turn and they can see this kind of an acknowledgement to Lydell there, because Perry certainly notices it. Yeah, they they want um, they want tactically to to cut off the defense from exploring further things, and to not give them more time to prepare. It's, right. You know, it, it's almost like, hey, they're getting close to the truth of something. Investigating, let's let's not give him any more time to investigate. Right. And the fact that Perry himself is somewhat distracted, you know, I mean, and maybe it's all about, you know, the train, the train set incident. Um, so he's not even wondering the way Della is, it's why the prosecution rested when they still had at least three more witnesses to call, but it's everything you just said. Um, but it's either that incident with the train was some form of intimidation whether they think Lydell is the person behind it or not, because as Della points out, you know, if Lydell is behind something, he he it, he would be he wouldn't pussyfoot around. <laughs> he, would, he, would, he would do a lot more than just you know, ooh, look, someone was in your house and they left a smoking cigarette or something. Um, so it's interesting that there's still a bit of an element. Well, there's a lot of elements of mystery going on still. Like I don't want to say there's only one. Um, so we get shortly after that, Della sees Hamilton Berger, or or I'll just refer to him as Ham from this point on. And it's uh, it's weird, not weird. It's interesting that he's I'll use that phrase again. He's freezing her out. You no, know, you know, and she's just trying to be a friend, and you start wondering. You know, is their friendship ruined at this point, or at least temporary, if, if if more than just temporarily? And then I started thinking about it. And I'm going, you know, between the fact that what we talked about last time and what we see in court as well, Slidell was sitting right next to the man, and I had said that, yeah, I, I think Lydell is the one behind a lot of the stuff that the prosecution has been doing here. We'd be offering that deal or everything else just to make this all go away. But I'm also thinking Lydell is using Ham's secrets against him, almost as a form of like blackmail. So it's not simply, you know, so it's not just he's a guy with power. We already know he's a guy who knows things. You see how he yeah. knows all about Perry. Yeah. He certain do we think he doesn't know about Hamilton Berger's secrets, which would pretty much ruin him at this point in time? So I think and and, and the uncomfortable way Hamilton is reacting and, and dealing with things makes me think that's what's going on. That's what's at work here more than anything else. At least that's that's the way I'm reading it at least. No, I, I mean definitely Lydell is the puppet master and, and you see it you see it I mean clearly in frame that this episode. Like mm-hmm. like uh, and and I love the way like Ham has his hat pulled down and is clearly not wanting Della to say hi. He's wanting to get away and not be seen talking to her. Right, absolutely. So then we we bounce over to the Drake storyline. It's Drake and his 
I call him his bro-in-law, Mo, Mo, Mo the bro. And he gives him a job of staking out that, that, that street corner because, you know, the, now we want to find that hop head in the fancy blue car and we want to see where that's going to lead. Um, not really that much more to say about that. It's more interesting that moments later at the office, it's when Holcomb shows up. And oh, let me just say right now, hey, did it again, Brian. Uh, <laughs> I'm channeling you. Now I just got to start talking. Anyway, um, my, uh, just to be clear, possibly my other than, other than certain courtroom moments, of course, and, and actually an elevator moment, um, my favorite stuff in the whole episode is all the Perry Holcomb stuff. I love it. I, I love it. I love it. It's the classic. It's it's look. The hero and the villain have to work together. You know. It's all I love when that kind of stuff happens, and it makes us look at view them differently in this regard. Um, because Holcomb comes to him. Obviously, he doesn't want to take the stand. He's trying to get out from under that subpoena. He's clearly desperate, and they use the word desperate a number of times in that scene, if I'm not mistaken, um, because he's trying to bargain his way out of testifying. And there's there's all these different lines here, which I, I love the idea that when he refers to him as like an ace of an investigator, and that's where Perry starts to laugh. It's like, you really are desperate. I'm like, wow, he might have ladled it on a little too thick there, but <laughs> yeah. once you're complimenting him like that, he's not going to be buying it. But what 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 I loved about the scene is when we get to the end of this scene is... As a viewer and, and someone who's invested in watching the show, you're we're like, oh, yeah, say yes. And when he still says no, like, oh, damn. But it's like, okay, he's, he didn't walk out the door yet. He's going to say something just, as, just before he hits that door, and then he does. You know, because I love that he says, I can tell you're being sincere by that desperate look in your eyes or however he phrases it, whatever. But he still wants some, sort of, some form of insurance, whatever. And I love, I love the line, eh. Just an abuse of power, nothing you can't handle. Yeah. And yeah. Like, Perfect. Yeah, I love I love Holcomb's line that he says, put me in that chair and I lose it all and I'll take you down with me. Uh but but after the threat, he follows up. It, it he doesn't he doesn't ask Perry in a demanding or threatening way. He just says, Come come with me and see what I want to show you. Yes. Yes. And I also love the fact that I love that we don't know what it is yet. Right. Because I was like, what is it? What is he could possibly show him? I'm very curious about this. Um, we do get a little bit of levity, I'll say, in, in the next minute or two, when we see someone is clearly trying to break into Perry's place and not doing a very good job of it. And then we see it's Pete Strickland. Yeah. <laughs> and he has an awkward moment in the hallway with one of the neighbors. It's like, you know, the, the, the Johnsons or whoever live. And, and we're like, I don't think this woman is buying it, whatever. No, not at all. That's great. But um, shortly after that, Drake and Clara are online to, to attend the show because, um, um, the, the, you know, Mo, Mo, Mo the bro is going to be doing stakeout duty that night, which means that Drake won't be uh, replacing him until, I don't know, three in the morning, whatever the time is that they, they've set up for each other. I forget right now. But they're online, and that's when Drake notices crossing the street a dude in Converse sneakers. And we get a little audio flashback, which is something you don't see employed very often. Um, remembering the night where he was basically 
forced to beat the hell out of Ozzy Jackson. And we see that we, we, I mean, we already knew that this was affecting him. We saw that from that other episode when he, get, when he comes home and he gets in bed and his, the way his eyes look. But it's still clearly the echoes are both, you know, literally and, and metaphorically if, if impacting him by the way he reacts to the guy walking by. He demands to know about the sneakers and where did he get them? Did, he, did you get them off of Ozzy Jackson? And the way he speaks to his wife here as well. Oh, yeah. Big it, time. Yeah, it's... It's not good. He's spiraling. Yeah, it's not good. And it's one of those things, I mean, Clara has a, a few good lines in the way she has to react to him. Although, it's almost a shame that this is, you know, we're watching a story that's taking place in 1933 and the way people are going to be at that point in time, whatever. Because he almost wished that someone like Clara could have more agency on her own as a character and not be there simply as someone who has to either soothe or 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 provide counsel for her husband uh, but but that but sadly that that is what the role the roles that were assigned to people at that point in time you know either based on you know the time period not to mention the color of your skin and everything else that was happening um but you know just because we really like those two together and and she's kind of like that calming force for him but it doesn't seem to be working here no but i like that they've given that actress more to do this season yeah absolutely Uh, absolutely and it's nice to see it's nice to see that paul has her uh to get through this and and i think their their chemistry has been really good this year yeah most definitely so della's working late and she gets a call and we realize it's to go see oh it's to go see camilla although she bumps into the lawyer you know, old, old, old Fipsy there. You know, he has to leave. I'm due to meet my wife, my real wife. Yeah, my real wife. I kept thinking about that. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's okay. He could be referring to like you know, Camille is like his fake wife because he's like you know, whatever. But then it's like, well, it could mean that. But it could mean a whole lot of other things. You know, it could be just like let me make it clear in case there's any in case there was any doubt about the way the way my manner seems to be. I'm straight. Don't don't right. you forget it. You know. Yeah. Unlike you two, I mean, or you, but then again, this, the way the scene plays, I start wondering, hmm, is Camilla kind of list even a little bit interested in Della? <laughs> well, I almost took it as, as him saying, like, to her, hey, you know, that the, the, the chance, the opportunity might be there, that Camilla and I really, there's nothing there. I see, I see. It's a, so we we have the scene between the two of them. I I, I don't. It, it, it's a it's a cute scene, especially the. Have you any experience with marijuana? Yeah. But what it really comes down to by the end of the scene, you realize, you know, you're you're talking to her like a confidant, but you're treating her like the help. And then you realize, no matter who you are on the show, there is going to be this this class issue. You know, either you're Drake. Or or Strickland or Perry or Della whatever you know the the people who are of of a certain level are going to look at you and treat you a certain way even if they don't realize it the way Camilla clearly doesn't realize that yeah you don't see that that's probably that's kind of a little fucked up you don't see the look on her face and we're like oh um okay you know but yeah very strange yeah so Holcomb drops off. 
uh, Sanhaven file, which is clearly, we see from the tab, it's something about Noreen, which this must be the insurance that he wanted. So we have to wait for how that's going to play out. Um, we get a brief meeting between the Gallardos in prison. And by Gallardos, I'm referring to Sophia and Matteo. And that's where we hear that his younger brother, Raphael, is clearly struggling. Although later on, we see when, when he's in a more celebratory mood, he's like going, he's like, oh, I think he was better off when he was struggling because now he's celebrating and he shouldn't be. <laughs> never, never spit on a guy holding a baton. No, no, not, 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 not a good idea. But. When we get back to Della and Perry with that file, and they and they start talking about the the broken blood vessels and the choking, we already know where this is going. It's like okay, we know where we're going with this. But the the fun part in this scene is that's also when Ginny shows up and she's waiting in in the other room, and I love the line from Della. <laughs> he says, "Nice work. She's tasty." <laughs> Oh yeah, and De- and Della clocks it. Uh, so good. Um, and then obviously shortly thereafter, we we get the link, we get the belt, we get the belt buckle impression in the photos on the neck and and, and throat and so on. So it's like, okay, this is going to be fun later. There's going to be a moment at trial with this, isn't there? Um, we got a cute little scene between Perry and Ginny where I realized, hey, Perry is as bad as is using chopsticks as I am, which is why I don't use them. But the thing I thought was interesting, his answer to her question about whether he and Della had ever been together, I thought was interesting. Because I think on a previous podcast, oh, I've said that like three times tonight, who cares? Previous, in a previous podcast, um, I had wondered, because I couldn't remember, I didn't want to go rewatch season one, I just don't have the time, but I don't know if the Della's actual, um, the truth of Della's sexuality, whatever, had been discussed between her and Perry before. I couldn't remember that it had. It might have been, and I apologize if I'm just not remembering it. But I think between the tasty line and then how he reacts and answers the question makes me think, oh, yeah, he knows. Okay. I, I wasn't sure. He is a PI. He's not, and he's, and Perry's kind of a smart, he's a, he's a smart cookie, that one. Um, I'm realizing, you know, I think Perry actually does know Della's deal. I'm pretty sure. I don't, again, whether it was touched on season one or not. Pretty sure the, the way he goes about reacting and, and answering her question is makes it pretty clear. Like oh, we're uh, different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah, the way he doesn't answer Jenny's question but answers it. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, makes it very clear he's he's being intentionally circumspect about the whole thing. Right, and he's also. He does it in a way where he's not going to reveal something about Della to someone else because it's not his place to do that. Not, not 1933. <laughs> you know, you're not you're not going to be outing your friend to someone else who you don't know who they might talk to. And considering how Perry reacts later on in the episode, Perry is likely to be. Perry shows that he can be paranoid about people talking to people. So yes, very much. We do see a little. We, we see a brief moment, uh, you know, that evening of Mo the bro-in-law. He's on stakeout. And he's taking down license plate numbers. But let's get to court the next day, and we have Councilman Taylor on the stand, and Perry's doing the questioning at this point. And they're establishing how he knew Brooks McCutcheon between campaign contributions, and then there was that 
Oh, and my computer just went black on me as I'm talking to you. So give me one minute. I apologize to the listeners. Here we go. <laughs> I love when that happens. Um, it'll probably happen again now. So anyway, um, I loved Perry's touch of asking about the stadium in his district, which is brought up and then immediately withdrawn. So it's done purely just to make sure, no, no, I put it in the jury's mind. They, they, they can make that connection themselves. It's pretty clear that what, what, what I've implied by even bringing that up. Very, 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 uh, savvy there, Perry. He's a very clever fellow, that Perry. And then he brings up Noreen Lawson, you know, the councilman's sister. And I love the camera cutting to seeing Lydell's face next to Ham's face. <laughs> <laughs> not too thrilled looking himself. And we start to find that the little the little bits, you know, how she worked at a shipping company that was owned by McCutcheon. Maybe they knew each other because she worked in the Stenopole. And, you know, they, they start to go down the line of, you know, I couldn't say, where is she today? And that there's a certain point where Della interrupts. And the way the scene plays out from that point on probably for most people watching this is kind of like it of uh, uh, you know highlight and low light both being highlights in an order it's the highlight of the episode absolutely because and it's also it's a great touch that you wouldn't expect in a Perry Mason show because basically they switch places Della has the Perry Mason moment I love, there's a mo- early in the scene, I think it's after she makes a smart-ass crack. Yes, it's after she makes a smart-ass crack to Milligan, um, where the judge admonishes her and saying that, you know, some of Perry Mason's clearly rubbed off on her, which might not necessarily be a good thing. And meanwhile, as is the way the scene plays out, like, okay, you know, th- this is what, when, when you see any lo- movie or TV show dealing with lawyers and people understand, this is what they call a Perry Mason. The only thing other more Perry Mason moment than this is if you actually got someone to admit they killed somebody on the sand. <laughs> That's the only thing more Perry Mason than that. But otherwise, that before there before your Matlocks and LA Laws and all the other and Good Wives and all the other legal shows for the last forty years, this is what Perry Mason <laughs> went to. And the fact that in a two thousand twenty three HBO series is a yeah, this is a Perry Mason moment. We gave him a great moment in court, you know, in a previous episode. And it makes so much sense the way she explains it that she should be the one to do it. And she, you know, she is spot on. It's it's such a great scene, the way she reenacts the whole thing, the shocking nature of it. You know, her putting the belt around her own neck and holding it is going to is going to leave a far bigger imprint. No pun. No. Is it a pun? I don't know. Uh, No joke intended, whatever. uh, Than if Perry had done it. Absolutely. The, the theater of the moment, she completely commanded and brought the point home. I mean, you're talking about him strangling a woman. She puts the belt around her own neck. And in in that moment, asking the questions also, you know, in the in the show and during the trial, we've seen some of the men be crappy with mm-hmm. Perry. Yep. And it would be much more improper for a gentleman to be that way towards a woman. Right. Uh, and the way that Councilman Taylor tries to get by with her is to do the classic, I don't remember. I don't remember. And she does, you know, she finishes him off with the fact that he brandished a gun at a party that Brooks McCutcheon was at. And she said, I guess you don't remember that either. Like, right. 
Right. She, she gets to, you know, land a coup de gras on top of that, that not only did this guy do it to him, but, but he was angry about it and probably lied when he said, don't remember to, to cover up the relationship between him and Brooks and his sister. Right, right, right. I mean, again, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a huge win in court for the more, even more so than the one that they had in that, that other episode. Um, and then the, the look the, the the even more sorrowful, sorrowful and sour look on Lytle's face pretty much tells the story and makes you wonder where this is going to go beyond this. And and, and as you said before, um, the first person that Della calls after it is, is Anita, which is, and this is where she does make the decision that, yeah, she's going to move. And we do see that moment with her and Hazel. We, we, see, we see the beginning of the, the can we talk moment. We don't need to see the whole conversation because oh, we really haven't spent that much time with Hazel. So uh, it's okay. We, we get it. We kind of know what that conversation is going to be. We can move on. It's also, that's also around the time where we, we have the moment with the Gallardos and, and Rafi, you know, the spitting and the baton and the getting thrown in the hole, and, you know, down in the hole. The Strickland Milligan scene happens after that. And what's interesting about the scene is Milligan is not even remotely subtle. He's not subtle. It's very clear what he's doing. There's no pre the, 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 the pretense is poor, if any. And it's not like Strickland is dumb. He knows exactly what he's doing. So the whole thing about trying to get under his skin, you know, you know, with, you know, trying to aim that his ego, how you know, it takes a particular type of person to do. I couldn't, whatever. You know, again, also another moment where there's a, it's almost like a class thing is implied, you know, because, you know, particularly that means like, yeah, someone who does stuff for money because you right. whatever you can, where uh, I'm already, I, I'm beyond that. If you're a dirty prosecutor, it's virtuous, but if you need the actual work done, you give it to somebody like Strickland and imply that he has a bad reputation and Milligan can continue to pretend to be an angel. And he basically wants Strickland to be his agent of chaos. And in this moment, I mean, you know, we've seen Strickland, if he wants to keep that job and needs that job, Milligan is now pretty much telling him, if you, if you can't help me, you're no use to us or this office. Right. Right. It's, it's the implied threat of, you know, then I guess he won't be working here any longer. So, when we move, when we move beyond that scene, we do finally have Perry riding out to meet Holcomb. It's like it looks like he's meeting him at the shoreline or something. And despite the fact that he gave him that file, which pretty much might have at this point in time conceivably might have won the case for them at least at that point in time, there's still no tr- Perry still doesn't trust him. I love the two of them bringing out their pistols. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's a great little moment. Like, okay, we're both we're we're both laying down our guns, you know, you know, we're putting aside our mutually assured destruction here. And that's when, as they're walking to towards the rocks, Holcomb starts talking to Perry about this whole the whole bizarre produce scheme. And it's very clear that Holcomb himself isn't clear on exactly what was going on here. He knows that this is something Brooks was involved in, unloading his ships of all that produce in this place of a 
Port Juaname, and how he was in cahoots with this guy named Goldstein, who himself was brutally murdered days after Brooke's death, as we saw. I think his head, you know, the guy who got his head crushed in a vice, like he was an extra on Casino or something. And as for what happened to the produce that was supposed to be, you know, sold around, and although the way the scheme sounds, you know, there has to be so much more to it, because how can this, how can there possibly be enough money generated out of this for it to really interest Brooks McCutcheon, just for produce, whatever. But what happened to the produce if it, the ships were no longer going to Juaname after all this time? And that's when they move around the rocks on that shoreline, and it looks like there's tons of crates of produce that have just been dumped there. And then we find out we, um, when Perry brings one of these small crates to uh, um, to the office, or is it his home? I can't remember if it's his office or home. To the office, I think. There's like an oily residue on Yes. And we know that the McCutcheons were involved in oil. So I was like, okay, what's get, okay, there's something, there's something even more going on here than we thought. We still don't know what it is. So yay, more mysteries. But that's what the show is about. But the important thing here is that Della wants to rest the case because she feels the longer the case goes on, there's more potential for disaster, for exposure. But now Perry's the one who wants to press on. Because he's, you know, he, you know, he sees, he wants to see where all this leads. He just feels there's a huger, a bigger cover up here. There's so much that people can be taken. The righteous Perry is taking over. It's yes, like, it's no, because it, it, at this point in time, it's no longer simply about saving your clients from from the noose or electric chair, or whatever they would have used at that point. Probably did they have the electric chair in '33? I don't remember. Uh, they probably did. Um, it's about taking down these big, powerful people as well, which obviously would have a lot of appeal to him. So uh, we can shift over to Drake waiting for Mo at 3.30 a.m. He's worried and he gives a dude, you know, shit for not writing down every last detail. The, I think the real point of the scene is like, once again, Drake is getting kind of irrational and emotional and even his wife has to kind of get him in line, you know, putting the right is like, you're, you know, basically making clear to him, you're living in my brother's house. You have to treat the man with respect. You know, she could have, I mean, she could have had five minutes to go like, he's not a trained investigator the way you are. He did what you told him to do, what, what he could, you know, what are you talking about? You know, he took, this guy made a point, like, I took down the license plates. Is what, that's the main thing. Because if you can look at things by license plate, who cares if I don't know what model car it was? Because maybe I just didn't know what car it was. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, Paul's really going off the rail. I mean, the dude sat there all day and took notes and even said, like, he t- he wrote notes to the side of him. But Paul is just, I mean, he's really, really going off the rails. Yeah, it, it's it, the, the episode for the most part with Paul just seems to be about him... Um, Dealing badly with what he did to Ozzy uh, Jackson in that episode, and how much of an impact it's had on him, right up to the very, very end of this episode, where he makes a decision that one could say probably the decision doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense, and probably wasn't the right thing to do in that moment. And you were influenced by what had happened with what you did, rather than the case you're actually trying to work right. on. Uh, but we'll get there. Well, actually, not that far from there. Um, we do get this brief shot. We see someone's breaking into Perry Mason's office. 
and we can guess who it must be because you know we saw get Milligan wants something he can use. It's got to be Strickland doing that. So we're back at the trial. They were calling up the councilman Taylor, but Milligan asked for a sidebar, and that's when he reveals in judges' chambers about there being. Or actually, does he say it? He says it in the sidebar, and then goes into more detail in the judges' chambers that the weapon, the murder weapon, is actually in Perry's safe. Yes. And that judge is furious. And I like you know he's a he's a well-spoken man. That judge, he's well-read, if I recall. Yes. But he. He can drop fuck bombs like he's born. He, he, he's, he's, he may not be Logan Roy, but he can certainly curse a bit. <laughs> and then when he says, we're going to go on a field trip. And for a moment, there, I was like, wait, are they bringing the jury to you? But he just means just the principals there, the, the lawyers, the judge, whatever. And they're going, and they're going to go pretty much immediately, if, if, I, if I understood it, immediately to Perry's office. So there's no way anyone can do anything to change it, to hide anything. Yep. No one, no one has the opportunity to make a phone call and say, hey, you got to blah, blah, blah. The best moment, by the way, as we go from the judge's chambers to eventually to Perry's office, it's them in the elevator. I love I, – I, I, every show that always deals with – that has scenes with people in elevators, I always love elevator scenes. They, they, they're, they're usually played with some level of humor. Even when it's serious, there's something humorous about them. Or if they're dramatic, there's just something about the confinement to space that just makes it, just heightens the tension. So I don't care if it's Captain America or Don Draper or any other elevator thing that we've seen over the last number of years, you know, the the Good Wife or the Good Fighter or all the other shows. I just, you know, it, it might not be as good as time travel, but I love elevator scenes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think... Uh, any, I mean, comedies, dramas, I'll use them. I mean, there were some good ele- elevator scenes on The Office. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a great device because universally, no one feels comfortable on an elevator. Yeah, we, in fact, we just got one the same week on uh, on Ted Lasso. There was a big yeah. elevator scene, um, which was played for comedy, and then, it, then then there's something kind of poignantly serious about it, which is suddenly interrupted. Yeah, ele- yeah, yeah. When in, in fact, my next script is all going to take place on an elevator. It's going to be great. Oh, it'll be so cheap to make. It's got to make it be made. Anyway, they get to the safe and the gun, of course. Okay, I have to ask. For a minute there, did you think, or a second there, did you think maybe the gun wouldn't be there? Yes. Yeah. I, I thought like that Strickland might find a gun and take it out of the safe and hide it for Perry. So you're kind of playing both sides of it. He He told them which kind of blew the whistle on Perry. But then he took the gun, which kind of makes them look bad about it. Although if Perry's already acted like it was there, then it's, it doesn't, there's still a problem because then Perry doesn't have a gun. (laughs) Yes, but it would be, it would be interesting if they test fire that gun and it's not the right gun. That, you know what? We don't know. That's true. We don't know that we we didn't get a, I didn't get a good look at it. I don't know if that's the same exact gun or not. God, you know what? I'll be both happy and annoyed at you if it turns out that that you know, <laughs> Dan Part Two over there. Anyway, inside joke. Do you see someone? Anyway, so um, obviously with this whole situation that you, you've got potential contempt, forget contempt, concealing evidence charges, whatever they're they're hanging over Perry's head. That may maybe they're not. It's not going to fall down on him just yet, but it that's there. It it can it can happen. Because it's one of those things, I, I always find it interesting the way the judge seems to regard Perry. 
because it, it seems like there's certain things about Perry the judge likes initially, but I can you can kind of see he he kind of <laughs> has had it with him at this point. I think he refers to them both as clowns at some point or something like that, which is great. I love that stuff. But uh, unless you want, wanted to say something, I was just gonna I was gonna hit the paranoia part here. But if you want to say well, something, I, I just want to say go ahead. that that we talked earlier in the season. Like we were curious how the judge would be at trial, mm-hmm. and he's been really fair. Yes, I you're think. right. And and we were curious how he would swing after sort of telling Perry this kind of case wasn't a great case to take to trial. Right. Um, but I mean, this certainly could turn everything on its head. But even in this moment, Milligan, of course, being the smug prick that he is, immediately says, "I want to hold him in contempt." And the judge doesn't. The judge says that's not off the table, and you know I will certainly consider it. Um, the the judge, I, I think the way they portrayed the judge has been a surprise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, t- talk about uh, um, one of my themes for the night is television series that avoid the obvious cliches of what we expect, whether it be the obvious direction of plot or the obvious stock character we expect to see in a scene. And in all honesty, if this was a, if, even though I don't, I'll be, I don't remember as much about the Perry Mason TV show as I used to. Um, Cause you know, I've gotten old and my memory's gotten bad, but I could see that the judge would be a more two dimensional character in that and be more inclined one way or the other. Um, probably anti the defense because you know that's judges always have to be portrayed that way you know that's because that's, that's who they are um there's only a few things left the big one is the paranoia scene where who told who told you know per- perry says things to both per- perry says things that are mo- more than mildly accusatory to both um della and drake neither one of them are very happy about that but he's frantic at this point because someone has to have said something. And then when he goes in the other room, and I got to say, before I realize he's looking at um, a book where someone would have signed in or something, which I guess is what that book was, I thought he was going to make the connection and think it was Strickland. I was actually a little surprised that that didn't occur to him. But instead, that's not who he thinks it is and who he goes to accuse. It's Ginny. And I was going, oh, this is not good. (laughs) This is not good. Now, this is where um, Milligan accomplished everything he wanted and more. Yes, absolutely. That not only did they find something to hurt the defense's case tremendously, he has totally thrown Perry off his game. Right, right, absolutely. So what's remaining in the episode? It's what we alluded to before. We have now have Paul staking at that same corner, and he sees what he believes to be the car. And he's preparing to go pursue the car, and right when he starts to do that, he sees that kid crossing the street in the converse. And we know he should be going after the car, but instead, he tries to go out. He gets out of the car. First of all, I don't know why he gets out of the car. Um, he tries to go after the kid instead, which do- also doesn't work. Which basically sc- screws that whole thing up. So, so now, 
still doesn't nothing for him to be able to find the the, the hop head in the flashy blue car or whatever and and the credits roll with seagulls this this week yeah <laughs> the seagulls yeah. that you know Holcomb is was such a big fan of as we heard earlier in the episode yeah yeah I, I mean a lot of moving pieces really good really good pushing the plot forward um and and I like that there was tit for tat with both a really good moment for the defense and then a potentially really crushing moment for the defense. And, um, you know, the, the curious thing to me is what, what Paul did. It ended up in hurting Perkins Mm -hmm. and led to his entanglement with Perkins is when this all shakes down and he comes back to his wits, what, I would like to see happen is him go after Milligan. Hmm. Well, we've got two episodes to go. So we could, we, 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 the only thing that would work against something happening to Milligan by the end of the season is we've kind of played that tune before in the previous season of Perry Mason with those that are in charge of, you know, and on the prosecutor side are not uh, completely on the up and up. But, you know, as they said, you know, justice is an illusion and such. And <laughs> but, give, but give us a Strickland and Paul team up. I'm for that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I assume there has to be some form of reconciliation between those two. And he'll, 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 he'll I think he'll, probably do the opposite of what he did with uh, on, on Milligan's behalf before, and he'll do something maybe on Perry's behalf. And I, st- I still think somehow Sean Aston's going to play another part in this because we haven't gotten back to him yet. All that produce, maybe that's maybe that's he'll factor into that of having some ideas about that. Or maybe not. Who knows? Maybe he was having his competitors' produce oiled. Yeah. Could be something like that. Could be. Makes a lot of sense. Alrighty then. So, you know what? Next week, we will see just how, you know, well, first, we'll see how succession moves forward. And we will also get what I believe should be the penultimate episode of Perry Mason this season. Because they said there were two episodes left. So, and you know, we all love penultimate episodes here. And if, 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 if we can, we may attempt, oh, God help us, to add a third series into the mix, if we can keep that one relatively short, because premiering this Sunday after Succession, I'm assuming, we get the beginning, the start, the kickoff, whatever you want to call it, of the final season of Barry. It's a short show. We'll try so we'll try to we'll try to be likewise about it, but we've said stuff like that before and it doesn't quite work out. <laughs> I think we're going to go ahead and say we're going to talk long and maybe then it'll be short. That's right. You're right. We should do that. <laughs> but I want to, before we go, I want to give a shout out. Go ahead. We, we had a comment on the thread and wow, did. Uh, yes, Dennis Pettit commented that this was a great episode that he thought the acting and the writing were particularly strong. And I think he would join you and I in thinking that maybe this was the strongest episode of the season. He's dead. He's dead right about all those things. Um, in fact, I would even, and we, in fact, we, we can, we will, we will take his words 
and apply it to both things we talked about tonight, because I think it would be applicable to both things we talked about tonight. Absolutely. So, well, well done, Dennis. So, for the rest of you out there, oh, hey, hopefully Dennis got to hear that. If you all enjoyed this podcast, guess what? You'll enjoy hanging out on that aforementioned Facebook page. It's the Serious TV Drama Podcast page. Like the page and join the conversation about shows like Succession, like Perry Mason, like pretty much anything TV-related, or, you know, maybe movie talk or, you know, something to appeal to my ego. I don't know. You can find us on most podcast platforms. The ones I like to focus on are Apple Podcasts, where you can rate and review us. Just type in Serious TV Drama. You can type in STVD and we come up. That's cool. Better still, you can go to our hosting site on podbean.com, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Again, you can just type in Serious TV Drama, Serious TV Drama Podcast. I think STVD would work there as well. I I should check. I don't know. Oh, by the way, because I have to do it, you can also find that other podcast I do in both those places. It's Scott Forgot the 80s. Just remember, 1T and Scott. Um, the most recent episode was Red Dawn. The one that we'll be doing this month is Pretty in Pink. I have already seen the movie. You're going to want to hear what I have to say about that movie. And that's about it. So, Brian, always a joy to join you on the podcast here. Ed, Scott, it was great to be with you, and the podcast is now recessed. <laughs> yes, it is. And finally, since we keep being on the border of two hours... Because of that Succession episode, we have eclipsed the two-hour mark, and I'm okay with that because I knew we were going to be spending a heck of a lot of time talking about that episode. So I'm actually shocked we didn't talk for like 10 or 15 minutes longer, quite frankly. Me too. So with all that said, once again, thanks to you, Brian. Thank you guys for listening, and good night. Good night.